In our new collaboration with Raiden Solicitors, award-winning specialist family and divorce law firm here in St Albans, I'm chatting with Claire Wood and today we're looking at prenups. Prenups, what are they and why do we need them? So planning a wedding we know is really time consuming, it's really exciting, but thinking about financial futures may not necessarily be at the top of that wedmin list, but many couples do come and see us and are adding the prenup to that wedmin and want to talk to us about what their options are and whether prenups are worth the paper they're written on. So talk me through what a prenuptial agreement actually is. So a prenup is a contract, usually a deed, entered into before a marriage to regularise financial obligations and the division of assets and income in the event of divorce. So it's really an attempt to preempt what the court will do on divorce. It's an English legal document, a very different animal to a European marriage contract, which are generally much uh, shorter documents. But we'll talk about that later, really, what's involved in the document and what sort of thing um, it deals with. So what kind of people would get a prenuptial agreement and, and why? So prenups are really popular, I would say, with, with people who are going into their second marriages, so who have assets to protect, who perhaps have built up a lot prior to that second marriage and want to put in place some protection. Also really popular, I'd say, with people who are likely to inherit or perhaps have already inherited and have perhaps interests in family businesses they want to protect or have to protect. So we're told by family members they have to protect those interests. Or couples who really want to be really transparent about their finances prior to a marriage and perhaps want to operate separately. So financially separately during the marriage. Are they worth having, Claire? Yeah, so it's a little bit complicated legally. They're not strictly enforceable. You don't just go to court and say, here you go, court, here's a prenup, please rubber stamp it. The first question is going to be whether that agreement is valid. Is there a vitiating factor, so undue uh, influence or duress, that means that it will be set aside. But generally speaking, if you've had lawyers advising and it's all been done properly, it will be a valid agreement. And the court then will have regard to all the factors, so all the circumstances, on divorce but generally speaking if that prenup is fair it will be upheld so it definitely is worth the paper it's written on. Could you give us an example of a prenup either going wrong or going right? Well, both, I would say. So um, I I would say if the prenup is fair, if it's been properly negotiated by um, experienced lawyers, it's likely to be upheld provided it meets financial needs. So provided one of the parties isn't left financially vulnerable, provided that agreement gives them sufficient financial provision, it's likely to be upheld. I'd say I've, I've also seen interesting situations where perhaps someone wants to, to give inheritance, wants to, to make gifts prior to his or her death and makes it a requirement that their son or daughter enters into a post-nup, prenup or post-nup with their spouse to enable them to make those gifts. So we've seen this, which is an interesting wealth management tool, essentially. Daughter, son, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, I will give you this money, I'll gift it to you, provided your spouse signs up to an agreement that regulates what will happen if to that money if, if you end up divorcing. We had a big Supreme Court case in 2010, Rad Macker and Granity 
Tarantino, a very wealthy wife with a less wealthy husband. They entered into a, a, a prenuptial agreement in Germany and the court held him to the terms of that agreement, so, so kept in, him to it, even though it wasn't an English agreement. And that case crucially set out the test that we all now follow when advising on prenups. Essentially, the court said that an agreement that's freely entered into by husband and wife with a full appreciation of its implications, so knowing exactly what they're signing up to and the impact of that, unless in the circumstances at the time of the divorce, it's not going to be fair to hold them to the agreement, the court will hold them to it. So in a nutshell, unless it's an unfair agreement, the court's very likely to uphold it. It seems to me that a really good lawyer could challenge any of that though, right? How do you decide what's fair? You're absolutely right. Fairness is a value judgment and our judges have huge discretion. But I think when I'm negotiating, if I'm negotiating for the stronger financial party, the wealthier party, I will be saying to them, don't negotiate so hard that this agreement is at risk of being challenged. Let's be sensible. Let's be fair. Let's make sure that the agreement provides for the other party's housing need. So sometimes I will factor in where they're living, so their matrimonial home, and link the housing provision for the other spouse to the the house they're living in and I'll say to them think about the income position and let's base it on for example the last three years of expenditure during the marriage so that you've got these concrete things that will give you much more chance of ensuring that agreement is fair is seen by judges to be fair and will be worth the while negotiating because it's then subsequently upheld. What kind of things do you have to take into account? Factors to consider when negotiating. We had, bringing everything together, we had um, a Law Commission report in 2014, so it's not the law, but it gives us guidance as lawyers as to how to negotiate these agreements and what we should do. So we generally advise clients that they need to sign the agreement 28 days before the wedding. So that removes any suggestion there's been undue influence or pressure on the other party. So make sure it's done well in advance of the wedding. Both parties have to have independent advice, and this is something my European clients find difficult because in Europe they go off to their notaire, their notary, and the notary advises them both and they both sign on the dotted line. Whereas here it's really important, an agreement executed in England, really important that both of them have independent advice because you're seeing it from different perspectives. So essentially if you had one lawyer advising both, there would be a conflict of interests. So make sure both parties have independent advice. Usually the party who wants the agreement, the wealthier party, will pay the costs of the other. Again, to make sure they have proper advice and they are informed of the consequences of of the agreement and the the impact of it. Disclosure, so one of the important things in a prenup is to give disclosure, financial disclosure. So essentially to the less wealthy party, they know what they might be giving up. They can see what the asset base is and what it is that their future spouse is, is wanting to, trying to protect. And that's an important factor to take into account when negotiating. I think obviously the other crucial thing is to make sure that the other party isn't left financially vulnerable, particularly so if, if the intention is to have children. The court will not like a, a situation where the mother of, of young children is left in a financially vulnerable position. And again, that gives the opportunity to challenge an agreement, which no one wants. If you decide to marry someone and you are asked to enter into a prenuptial agreement, is it worth having? 
Potentially. I mean, as the weaker financial spouse, you are likely to be giving up some rights in signing this agreement. So it's a difficult one. And I I guess the advice to the weaker spouse has always got to be, you are open to saying no. You know, you can say, I'm not going to sign this agreement. But obviously, in some circumstances, there are consequences of that. And the other party will say, well, in that case, I can't marry you. You know, I can't, we can't go through with the wedding. I think these agreements, if properly negotiated can give some certainty. So I have acted for clients in the past who've said to me, Claire, I appreciate that my future spouse has built all of this up prior to the marriage. He's worked really hard to build up that business and the family has built it up over the generations and I don't want to make claims against it. I just want to know that I'll be okay and that my lifestyle and my standard of living post-divorce will not change dramatically. And so that's a base on which you can work from. You know, you say, well, look, that we'll leave the company intact and we're not going to make claims against it but we will ensure within the the prenup we've negotiated sufficient financial provision for you so you can buy a house and so you can continue meeting a lifestyle that you've you know that you've enjoyed during the marriage and and that your children can as well so I think even for the the financially vulnerable spouse the the less well-off party there can be advantages in having it there I think one positive thing is that it gives transparency right at the start right at the outset of a marriage you know your cards are on the table this is what we have this is what I own and this is what I'm proposing if things go wrong and if if divorce follows this is what I'm suggesting this is this is the proposal that I'm making so there are are some positives but obviously there are more advantages for the party who has the wealth for him or her it enables them to set out again what's owned prior to the marriage you know what is non-matrimonial not assets that have been built up during the marriage and it, it enables them to to ring fence assets to so to say look that asset is off the table it's a family business or it's inheritance that has nothing to do with the marriage and enables them to protect assets essentially and to ring fence them and also I guess in some cases it can reduce the acrimony because you're not having a long fight about who gets what and and what financial provision is made that's already been decided it's already been decided by you prior to the marriage and so it can reduce acrimony I think on divorce. How much do these prenups cost? So in terms of legal cost, everyone talks all the time about the cost of divorce. And that's true if if it's an acrimonious divorce and it's contested and it ends up in the courts, it can cost a lot of money. So one potential benefit of a prenup or a postnup is that you spend out the costs on lawyers to negotiate a sensible, fair agreement. And then you don't, hopefully, don't end up litigating. So it can save cost um, if both parties go into it with the same mindset and intend to be bound by that agreement. What takes priority, the prenup or the will, Claire? So the will takes precedence. So if the parties are still married, it's unlikely that the prenup would take take precedence over the will because the will would, generally speaking, provide more for a spouse than it would for an ex-spouse. Usually we have a clause in a prenup that will say that both parties agree to enter into, in, enter into a will and that the will will make no less provision for the other party than is set out in the prenup. So if ultimately the will gives less provision to the weaker financial spouse, the vulnerable spouse, then there is a chance to challenge the will. So these are all advantages, Claire, but what about the disadvantages? Yeah, so I think the fact that they are not 100% legally binding, you know, there always is scope for challenge. The court can always come in and say 
this is not a fair agreement, we are not holding the parties to it. So that is a disadvantage. It's not like a contract you make out in the commercial world where you sign up and you're bound. I think one of the interesting things about negotiating an agreement is acting for the vulnerable spouse. She or he often don't have as much negotiation advantage, perhaps. And I think those kind of sensitivities, the emotional side of negotiating an agreement can be really difficult. It's a really exciting time. You're getting married, you've got your dress. I remember I had one case where my uh, client was literally picking up her wedding dress on the morning she had to come and sign the agreement. You know, you can't forget that. This is a really exciting time and yet you've got this agreement talking about divorce. So that is challenging. And what I'd say is make sure you get a, a lawyer who has, you know, a really good understanding of the emotional side of it and takes away some of that pressure from the client. So, you you know, I, if I'm acting for the less wealthy party, I'm going to negotiate for him or her to make sure I get them the best deal possible and to make sure the agreement's as, uh, as beneficial as possible for them. Sometimes the agreements are not comprehensive, so we can have agreements that deal with just assets or ring-fencing a particular asset, or we can have a comprehensive agreement that deals with both income and assets. And I'd say sometimes the agreement's cannot foresee everything that will happen in the future so it may not have dealt with a situation where inheritance comes in on one side or perhaps one party's gone on to earn a lot more than than they thought or uh, to have a much bigger earning capacity so these agreements don't necessarily cover absolutely every eventuality so if i'm acting for the the wealthy party who who wants the agreement in place i'm going to make sure that the agreement is as fair as, as possible so yes it's got to be better for him or her than would be the situation if they ended up in court but I also want to make sure the agreement is going to be upheld or has the best chance of being upheld so making it fair making it reflect the reality of this the, the living arrangements for this couple so looking at when we're looking at housing need and what housing provision should be made for the other party I often link it back to where they've lived during the marriage and with income provision again I'm linking it back to you know what's been spent during the marriage so that it's not totally out of kilter with the kind of fairness approach that a court would take but obviously it's going to be better than the deal that the court would impose because that's the purpose of the agreement to protect assets because yeah. one attempt to challenge an agreement can be well at the time of the agreement we we're living in a two million pound house we're now living in a 10 million pound house so and this was all on the basis is on the premise of us living in this two million pound house and that was why I was going to get five hundred thousand pounds so if you link it to the value of whatever house they're living in at the time of divorce not at the time of the agreement it gives longevity to the agreement thank you so much Claire still lots more on this subject in the next podcast with Claire Wood from Radon Solicitors we'll look at postnups that's coming soon here on Radio Verulam